0: This story is all about a God who is able. And if you were a a, a Jewish reader, a pre-Christian Jewish reader, then you would be telling your children this story saying, this is the story where God delivers his people from the darkest of situations. And he uses the least likely people to share his story. So we're in this book called Two Kings. And this is one of the history books of ancient Israel. Now, as soon as I mention the word history, some of you will get a nervous twitch because you'll remember those lessons at school where you just thought, I just don't like history. It's all those facts and figures and dates and, and some of you find it really interesting. And uh, I just want to assure you today that actually the, the book of Kings is, is a fascinating book to read for, for two reasons, really. Firstly, that it, it doesn't really deal with the history Of most of the kings of Israel and Judah. It actually looks at them from a very singular perspective and that is that the writer of Kings, his only two questions that he seems concerned with is how did this king relate to God and how did he respond to his word? And they're two very important questions that you and I can identify with today, 2,800 years later. It's the two most important questions you can ask. How do I relate to God, and how do I respond to his word? Here's the other thing about Kings. It's a book full of miracles. In fact, the reason it's called Kings, just to say, is because originally Israel had been a nation without a king. God was their king, and that was going to be the deal. Uh, But the people of Israel rebelled against God, and they said, look, we're not too happy with the whole God is our king situation, we'd love a human king to make us a bit cooler with the other nations around us, because they've got kings, we want a king. And so God kind of went with them, and he said, okay, I'll give you a king. So they got Saul, they got David, they got Solomon, and then pretty much after that, they got some horrendous kings, with a, a couple of minor exceptions. In fact, the son of Solomon, the kingdom split into two, into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, so Israel and Judah. And the northern kingdom to which Elisha prophesied, it never ever had a good king on its throne. Every single one of them led people away from God and into idolatry and the worship of of false gods and to sexual immorality. Every single one of them. It was a very dark season of the people of God's history. And it was that season that God was present in. God didn't withdraw from them but rather he sent his prophet Elisha into the midst of it. And isn't that fascinating to know that, you know, the the church, you can walk into churches, maybe you're new here today, and we know the church can be a mixed bag, right? We know that you can meet good Christians and people that seem to diligently follow Christ, and you can meet people who think, "I I don't get it. But the truth is this, God is so faithful to his people that he never gives up on you. And my encouragement to you is to make sure you're part of a church. If you're just looking around today, make sure you're part of a church. You'll you'll never find the perfect church. But you'll find a church where God is faithful to his people and where he's working with them. The story of kings is the story of a God who won't give up on his people. So the story that Joe read for us today is a story of incredible deliverance from an incredibly dark situation. You couldn't get darker than this. You could think of situations in the world right now which you would think are equally bleak to this situation. You might think of food shortages in Aleppo where people don't have food, people are dying because they don't have fuel or food. And the Bible, and the God of the Bible, is no stranger to suffering. And this book takes us right into the deep end, that you find that this city is under siege. Ben-Hadad, the king of the Aramaeans, he's a pretty bad guy. He crops up a lot in the books of Kings. And you find he's got the city under siege, and the people of God are scared, and they're short of food. In fact, the famine is such that a donkey's head, get this, a donkey's head is selling for 80 shekels of silver. Are you familiar with the uh, shekel currency system? <laughs> yeah, okay, a shekel is about a month's wages. So, a donkey's head. I don't think a donkey was a delicacy in that culture. You know, and I, I, don't, I checked my Save with Jamie cookbook this morning, and I was looking for thrifty meals that could be cooked. Donkey isn't one of these things that, that is, a, is a great meat to eat when you're on a budget. Now, this was saying fuel, uh, food prices have become so exorbitant in this city that a donkey's head, the least nutritious part of a donkey, is now selling for 80 months' wages. And if you couldn't afford a donkey's head, then you were being offered a quarter of a cab seed. If you look in the, the footnotes to your Bible, it says that could also be translated as dove dung. I don't know what the nutritional value of dove dung is, but certainly not very much and as you'd expect where the economy has crashed and food food prices are doing that, the poor get left behind and as human beings, I think God knows that we need a human face on suffering and we see it in the, the news these days, you see people carrying that dead Syrian refugee boy, it it captures something for us. It reaches us. And in this story, we're presented with a human face of suffering. And you read the story of these two mothers who are arguing. The king's walking past, and they're arguing. And what are they arguing about? Well, this is getting truly dark now. They're arguing because they'd made a deal to cook each other's children, to provide for their food needs. And one woman had followed through with the plan and the other woman had hid her child and said, well, I'm not going to cook my child. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Empathy works for us sometimes. There's some situations we can understand and we can say, well, I totally get how somebody would feel that. There's some things like that we think, I could never understand how somebody would do that to their own child. But this is just the thought I had on it, which is this, that We never truly understand how we will react under pressure until we're under pressure. And you and I do all sorts of strange things when we are really facing it. And we start articulating things and saying things and behaving in odd ways where our friends say to you, are you okay? That's not your normal self. And what happens when we're under pressure is, two things happen, the very best comes out of us and the very worst. And here we see the very worst of the human heart condition coming out when these two women are faced with a desperate food shortage. Over a few years I've chatted sometimes to, to people who've hit rock bottom in their lives and they've found themselves homeless or in a really difficult situation. And I'll say, Look, how, how did you get in this situation? Tell us your story. And the answer is always this, the, the, the points of reference are different. But the situation is all this, they found themselves in an impossible situation and they made the wrong choice. And the wrong choice led to other bad choices which led to a total loss of everything. So we meet people who are in desperate poverty in the city of Samaria. We meet politicians who are powerless. The king is walking past and they say to the king, king would you help us? And he doesn't say, hey, what's the problem? He says, no. He doesn't yet know what the problem is. He just says, I don't think I can help. The king is powerless in this situation, this king of Israel. In fact, he ducks the question, and being a good politician, but a bad king, he ducks the question and he looks for somebody else to blame. He says, here's the real problem going on in the city of Samaria. He says, May God deal with me ever so severely if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. He says the problem is God. If we could just shut God down in this situation, then everything would be okay. It's a perplexing logic. Here they are being besieged by a foreign army. The one thing they need is a voice of help, somebody who can tell them what they're going to do and how they're going to get out of it. And Elisha is that person. But the king turns on him and he says, let's just shut down the voice of God here. That can be a common cry in the the world today. You can find people saying, you know, the one voice we don't need in the world today is religion. The one thing we don't need is people telling us something about God. We're trying to solve the world's problems here. How dare you Christians say it's something to do with God? And you can feel that pressure sometimes. You think, am I really free to talk about my faith and say this is a really helpful thing? So he finds the prophet Elisha and he wants to kill him. Elisha sees it coming. It's helpful to be prophetic, isn't it? And so he barricades himself in. And behind the barricade, he prophesies to the king and he says, one more day and the siege will be lifted. And that word should have been received with the greatest sense of faith and hope out of any word in Israel. They're saying, it's over. You just need to wait but instead, they don't receive it. In fact, one of the king's officials, he's cynical. he says, oh, yeah, could that even happen? Even if there was a God in heaven on our side, could that happen? I don't think so." He received it with cynicism. But the description of the impossibility of this situation is actually a backdrop to an impossible deliverance that is to come. And if you just look again at 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 1, Elisha, this is the word he prophesies. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says about this time tomorrow. A seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Things will be good value again. In fact, the climax of the story is in chapter 7, verse 6. If, you, if I was to bore you with a lot of the Hebrew structuring of this passage, then everything points to this as being the climactic verse of the whole story, okay? And it's in chapter six, 7, verse 6. It says, For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of the chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives so at the center of this story about the darkness of this situation there is a story of god's great salvation and god is going to change this situation completely because he's a god of miracles isn't that right yeah maybe yeah. he's a god of miracles god is the god who turns things around and he doesn't need time to do that he can do it instantaneously He can say, tomorrow, or the next day. He can end a famine just like that. He can change the world. We serve an all-powerful God, a God who can change things. And he prophesies in this situation, he says, I'm going to change it. And he does it. What is humanly impossible, God is going to do. And he'll do it without any help from anybody. That's the God we serve. He doesn't actually need human help. He doesn't need helping hands. In fact, if you're trying to get to know God today, you can think, well, maybe if I just behave a bit better and if I get my act together and I'm a nicer person, that'll make me more acceptable to God. God doesn't need your help to bring you into relationship with him. He gives it as a gift. It's his own doing. It's his own miracle. He does things on his terms, in his timing, in his way. Uh, I've got four kids, if you don't know me, and... uh, for our first Kid Jack, we, Julie and I went along to the, the the pre-birth classes, antenatal classes they're called, and they're great fun, those, if you ever get to go to those, they're, they're fun because there's a room full of, of potential mums who all get on really well, and you've got some dads who sit there slightly more awkwardly, and you, you, you kind of get to know each other, but there's this strong thing, you know, and it, it's a cultural thing, isn't it, of well, this is something we're doing together, we're having the baby together, it's a husband and wife team, we're, we're having a baby. And you sort of go with that and you chat about it, you, you know, we, I remember even writing our birth plan, and, uh, you know, to go into hospital, and, and I kind of just brushed up on it just before we got to hospital to give birth to Jack, and, and I kind of just looked through it and I said, yeah, my, my bit, Julie wants me to hold a towel. That was it. <laughs> and... Uh, so I, I I just waited faithfully at Julia's bedside for the next few hours, and occasionally I'd say, "Would you like the towel?" <laughs> and and she'd say no. And again, two or three times I'd say, "You ready for the towel yet?" <laughs> and eventually she just grabbed off and said, "Just give that to me." <laughs> and here's the point: the birth of each of our children. Really, I I played no part in any of those things at all. Who delivered those Julie did. She did incredibly well. But here's the thing. God doesn't need our helping hands. He brings about deliverance by his own means, in his own time, in his own way. It's always his way. Maybe you're facing an impossible situation. And God can bring about deliverance in his way, in his time, in his place. And we can't second-guess God to know when that's going to happen. But he will. Often you find after the event that God has been working behind the scenes all of the time. In fact, this is the story central to the Christian faith. A God who brings victory without our help, against our biggest enemy. And he does it without our help and without our knowledge. You see, this army that was put to flight in this story... It was totally unknown to the people of Israel inside the city of Samaria. They knew nothing about it, this miracle that God was doing. God was causing mass hallucinations of a massive army that they were terrified for their lives, and they ran because they thought they saw a massive army attacking them. God did that unknown to his people. When you look at the cross of Jesus Christ... Do you know there was not a single person there on that day other than Jesus hanging on that cross where he was crucified? There wasn't anybody there kind of writing notes or taking pictures or saying, do you see what he's doing? Do you see what he's doing? Do you see the forgiveness for the sins of the world? Do you feel the load, lightning, passes by? Do you see it? Do you see our forgiveness being achieved right here on the cross? Nobody saw it. Yet after he was raised from the dead, one of his greatest followers, the Apostle Paul, put it this way. In Colossians 2, he said, He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He said, that's what happened on the cross, whether you knew it or not. You may not know today what the cross has done for you. But here's the wonder of it. It's achieved your total acceptance to God. those who believe here's the other thing it's achieved freedom from all of your enemies that verse in colossians carries on and having disarmed the powers and authorities he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross here's something else that happened on a on a roadside in jerusalem as jesus was crucified on a cross when he uttered those words which some people probably didn't even hear it is finished The devil and every demon of hell that stood against you and i ran for their lives realizing they had been defeated completely at the cross of jesus it was a victory that god won in his own way in his own time in his own place but he did it for you and i today that victory is our ultimate victory And that doesn't mean that God will deliver us from every single situation we face in this life, but it does mean this, that ultimately he will deliver us from every one of those. When we pass through the gates of death, which causes fear for so many or such an unknown, this is what the Bible says about death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. For the Christian, you can enter death with sincerity and with peace, because nothing will ever separate you from his love. So we see a victory, wholly won by God. Here's the second thing that we see. We see a message, this message of God's deliverance was given to wholly unlikely messengers. And I love how there's this change of tone. It's been like watching the news at 10 so far. And it's just all the awful stories going on in the world wrapped up into one. And then you come to chapter 7 and you find The nice story at the end of the news and now a story about some lepers at the city gate it's like the story of the tortoise that fell 10 stories from a block of flats and survived it's the lovely heartwarming bit at the end of the story but what we find is this is much more than the heartwarming tale this is much more than the feel good bit this is integral to god's whole plan to tell a city who are unaware of his victory, to tell them about it. So here we're told there was four men with leprosy at the entrance to the city gate. Who is God going to partner with to tell the needy world, the needy city, about his news? Who's he going to partner with? And we're told later in the story that there's plenty of people he could have chosen there was plenty of people who perhaps hadn't made themselves available. There was a king and there was envoys of the king. In fact, when the lepers came back with this news that, that the enemy had gone, the king suddenly mustered up five horses from somewhere. I don't know why they hadn't been eaten at this point. <laughs> but he says, hey, I've got some envoys and some horses. Ride out and find out if this is true. He's slightly behind the curve, isn't he? But as so often in God's kingdom, you find... The people he uses to carry the good news of the world, they're not the brightest and the best. And I dare I say that in a room with so many PhDs and degrees, I don't know. Apparently Edinburgh is the most educated city in the UK. We've got more degrees per head than any other city, which is quite astonishing. But the truth is, I don't think God is anti-clever. I don't think he's anti-competent. Not at all. You meet some highly competent people in the Bible, but here's the truth, that... Those things can sometimes get in the way of his purpose because we're so busy overthinking what he's trying to tell us. And the cynics of the city were too busy saying, well, God couldn't possibly do that, so we're not going to even have a look out the castle window and and see what is going on in the enemy camp. So God stirs the hearts of these lepers, these four people. Lepers were were destitute. They were people who had been alienated from society. In your footnotes it will say... Something like leprosy can be about any sort of skin disease. They were regarded as infectious and therefore unacceptable in the community. They were excluded. They were isolated. They were people who were left out, so they found friendship with one another. So I can only imagine these four guys, they were just good pals. And they were together, and they were sitting there, but they were starving to death. And so one of them has a bright idea. I don't think these are the sharpest knives in the drawer, these guys. But one of them has a bright idea, and he says, you know what, guys, we've been sitting here for months. And what we're finding is the whole begging industry seems to have dried up because nobody's got any food left to throw to us. And to be honest, if we sit here, we're definitely going to die. And one of them says, I've got an idea. Why don't we walk down to the enemy camp and we'll probably die. So we've got an option here of certainly die with an empty stomach or probably die, but perhaps somebody will give us some food before we die. And so they kind of mull it over and they think, what should we do? they probably take a vote on it. And they decide, here's the good option for us. Let's do the probably die option. And... Unknowingly, they respond to the word of Elisha. The people who knew the word of Elisha didn't respond to it, but these people, not knowing it, somehow found themselves caught up in God's plan of deliverance. It surprises us who God uses. Now, we love a feel-good story. And in isolation, you could make an epic film about the story of the lepers. Because it's just an incredible story, and we need to be careful to go beyond the end of what is a truly wonderful thing for them, a story for them that ends with them full-tummied and dressed in the finest clothes and rich, having lived their lives in poverty. But I want us to see something, and I wonder if we could actually put on a bit of Hollywood music, just to, just to help me retell the story because it's so easy for us to see our Christian lives from a purely individualistic scale. So if we could, um, so (laughs) here's the story of the four lepers at the city gate. And, uh, And they're sitting there one day, and they say, if we stay here, we're gonna die. If we go there, we're probably gonna die, but we are gonna go on a mission for food. And so they begin their long, painful walk without any horses and they head towards the enemy camp and they go further and further and it's dusk, the night's drawing in. Meanwhile, at exactly the same time as they set off, the enemy, sees a great vision of an army attacking them. It's a complete hallucination. But they hear it. They see it, all of them. And in their hundreds and thousands, they say, run for your lives. And they flee. They leave everything behind. They leave their tents. They leave their kit bags. They leave their food. They leave everything. It's all gone. And they just run for safety. They run to the hills. And meanwhile, these lepers just walk into the camp. And they... They kind of peek around and they say, oh, there's nobody here. And they daringly open the flap of a tent, wondering what is going to be behind the flap. And do you know what they see? Do you know what they see in the tent? caesars and other chocolates and they think chocolate (laughs) there's beer on ice they're like whoa this is heaven come to earth and they start eating they're tucking in they're loving the moment they're filling their tummies and then do you know what else they see they see clothes these are naked men they're lepers they're beggars they put on the finest clothes and they start dancing around we are rich they see gold and silver and they put around their necks We've made it. We're the lepers who have a story to tell now. We have achieved greatness. They hide all their wealth. because they say, we don't want anybody to take this moment away from us. And do you know how the story ends in Hollywood? It ends with these four lepers, arm in arm, with a selfie, (laughs) and they smile, and they take a click. And it's the story of human tragedy turned to human greatness. But it's the story of individualism. But then, just as everybody is beginning to file out of the cinema as they're watching this epic movie, think like that's the end of the story, wasn't it a good tear-jerking tale? One of the lepers shouts out of the screen. He says, "Oh, hang on a minute, guys! Hang on. This isn't just about me." And the other guy with a mouthful of chicken says, "What? What do you mean it's not about me? I'm loving this moment." He says, "No." One of them has a spiritual pang of conscience where he says, this is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. I kind of liked it when I had the music going, to be honest, but (laughs) it feels kind of quiet now. He said, this is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. And there's a great danger for us as followers of Jesus because, you know, when you haven't been fed spiritually all your life, when you haven't known Jesus, when you haven't experienced the wonder of his forgiveness and life and love and grace and mercy, when you haven't experienced this incredible thing called his church, where we live in community with people who seem to like us and love us and get on with us. And when you come into that for the first time, isn't it incredible? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Working hard here, isn't it incredible? God's love is incredible, and it's like a discovery. I remember that day when I was a teenager and I became a Christian, and I thought, wow. It was like winning the lottery, it was incredible. And I just couldn't get enough of God. I couldn't get enough of reading the Bible. I couldn't get enough of church meetings. I went on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening. I even joined a Christian drama group. (laughs) Because I needed something every night of the week, because I just want to feed on God, this is so good. And it's so satisfying. And you know, you can be a Christian and you just love the experience of being a Christian because it's good. It's good to live in relationship with God. It's good to meditate on His grace. It's good to feed His word. You, you, can, you can even end up being a church sometimes that, that just extols the wonder of being a Christian. And people come and turn up every week because they love that. I just love being reminded how good this is. But in doing so, we miss something better we miss something better, which is this, that God calls recipients of grace to be the means of grace to the world. And he calls you and I to be people who are well fed. And I dare say this, if you don't think the Christian message is good news, then the likelihood is that you need to experience the grace of God in a fresh way. You need to feed more on who God is and his wonderful love for you to read something like the book of Romans in in the message translation and just remember again how incredible the gift he has given you is and the gift of his spirit which is alive and well for us now and to be received by us now. I don't know where my notes went, but here we go. The early church was a church that was well fed in God. On the day of Pentecost, they got filled with the Spirit, but moments later they found themselves on the city streets preaching to a hungry world in need. And these four people, these four men, these four lepers, are overjoyed. And they say, let's take this message back to a city that knows nothing about it at all. The city is still fearful, still hungry, but everything has changed. And they take that courageous step of spreading the news. Remember, these are outcasts. Nobody had any reason to listen to what these people had to say. So they went, verse 10, and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, we went to the Aramean camp and no one was there, not a the sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys. And the gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. Here's what happens. The lepers shout the news to the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers shouted to other people. It was a bit of a shouty culture to be honest back then. And some cultures are like that. I've got to say Edinburgh in our kind of day is not a terribly shouty kind of culture. In fact, the louder you shout, the more obnoxious people seem to think you are. But that doesn't invalidate the fact that we have a message to share with our city. And I want to challenge us this morning to be people who bring good news to our city. I was reading a comment by a guy called Bill Hybels. He's a great church in America. And he's, he's an evangelist. He's been leading a church for 40 years. And he makes this comment. He says, he's noted, in fact, I'll read you what he says. In the last decade, he said, having engaged with pastors all across the world, And I've noticed the marked decline in evangelistic energy in local churches that caused me many a sleepless night. And while I celebrate the rising compassion and justice activities in churches and the unquestioning excitement around worship, aside from the Alpha course, I have not sensed many new conversations happening about spreading the good news to those who live unaware of it. Isn't that a challenge for us? What he's saying is this. Praise God, he said. We seem to be doing better at caring for people in need reaching out with the love of God in all sorts of practical ways he said here's something we seem to be even less good at than we were 30 years ago as the church sharing the good news of Jesus with other people And I wonder if you could be a good news bearer of Jesus Christ let me give you four things that you will help you to be a good news sharer Um, here's the first one know that your primary qualification is your own experience, not having all the answers to the questions. The king had to do his own investigation of the situation. All the lepers had was, good news, there's food for everyone, come and get it. If somebody had said, can you give us the exact details of the the flight of the Arameans and where they might be hiding, I I haven't got a clue. Didn't even know it was the Arameans. But what we do know is this: there's food for everyone. Your testimony, your story is the most powerful thing you have in sharing good news because it can't be argued with. You're telling people, this is what happened for me. This is true for me. Use your own experience to share your story. Secondly, use your own style. Use the gifts God has given you. As I said, most of us aren't shouters some of you are great at caring some of you are great at conversation some of you are great at friendship some of you are great at invitation some of you are great at hospitality in fact as Christians we're called to care for the whole person not just talk at people find your style and use it to communicate the good news of Jesus to people thirdly be full of faith Be expectant. This story contrasts people who should have had faith but didn't with people who find it through a deep experience of God. How do you get faith? Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus and allow yourself to be stretched by God. Something I'm trying to do at the moment is every morning I'm trying to get up and just give myself to God. I'm not great at sharing good news with people but I say Lord please would you give me an opportunity today and then having prayed that I then Think about, in every conversation I'm in, I think, could this be an opportunity? And if God opens a door, then I will take that opportunity. Fourthly, these lepers were in a community, the four of them. It provoked them to do the right thing. Here's my challenge for you. Maybe you're looking around churches today. Get in a community that will provoke you towards sharing the good news with others. Maybe in your small group this week, you can talk about how are we doing on this? I can guarantee most of us are struggling in this area, but God has a good plan for all of us in this. Wow, well, it's incredible news. Here's what the Bible says about the coming of Jesus in closing. I don't know if the band could just uh, join me for a a final song here. Paul summarises the good news, says, That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Here's the good news. God is not in the business of counting people's wrongdoing against them. But rather he's offering forgiveness and a way for people to know God. Isn't that incredible news? Isn't that life-changing news? You know it is because you've received it for yourself. Let's be bearers of that good news to others. In, in, in one final word for you. If you're new to all of this today, and you're saying, how do I receive this good news? The answer is very simple. You acknowledge that you're in spiritual poverty. You accept the word of God. And that word isn't just the Bible. It's actually the person of Jesus Christ. You accept him into your life. You ask him to forgive all of your past. And then God fills you with his bread, with his food. He satisfies your soul. And more than that, he calls you to be one who changes the world and makes a difference. So let's let's stand, let's pray, and let's sing as we close. Lord Jesus, we just want to say thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you for uh, your uh, your plan, your victory, your message of love to a world in need. Thank you for the victory of the cross. Thank you, it's solved it for anyone who believes for all eternity. I pray that you'd make us sharers of that news in Jesus' name. Amen.